This presentation is from UX Australia 2019, Sydney. Please join me in welcoming Liz to the stage. Thanks, Liz. Thank you. Thank you. Hello. Get situated real quick. I hope nobody minds if I move this computer. Because I've got paper. Okay. So I I came from New York City, New York City all the way um, to Sydney uh, to show you this tweet. <laughs> um, I'm going to try and read it from the side. So it says, "We're super excited to introduce Lego Braille Bricks, a new product from the Lego Foundation that will help blind and visually impaired children learn Braille in a playful and inclusive way." So. Below this tweet was a video, um, which I'm about to show you. And while we're watching the video, I'm hoping you can ask yourself, how does it make you feel? Uh, we'll turn it down a little bit. So as you're watching this, are you thinking to yourself, maybe you're inspired, um, maybe you feel a little bit of empathy, uh, faith restored in humanity? Uh, do I have any blind friends in the room? Uh, maybe next year. Um, if you were blind, you might say that this ad makes you feel a little bit different. You may feel angry or frustrated. You might even feel exploited. Why? Why? Because it's visual, right? There is no audio. How could they possibly know what's in it? And this is what we realize is, is this ad, it may have been about them, but it wasn't for them. So who was it for? Right? Let's check out another ad. How many of you have seen this ad where Nike signs their first ever disabled athlete? that aired a lot in the United States. We've got one hand in the back. Um, it's, again, an inspiring ad. Um, and this is, this is a, a runner at Oregon State named Justin Galagos. Um, and Nike quickly introduces him. And we get four seconds into the ad when Nike tells us that Justin suffers from cerebral palsy. So this ad was launched on World Cerebral Palsy Day. I have a lot of friends with cerebral palsy. Um, they don't suffer, they live with cerebral palsy. I mean, does this look like somebody who's suffering to you? Anyway, as the ad progresses, we learn that Nike is surprising Justin with a professional contract. They're surprising him. But if you Google signing day, you'll see image after image of athletes sitting at a table with a contract and a pen being treated as a professional because that is what this is. This is a professional contract. Nike didn't realize that they were telling us that they don't see Justin as a valuable signee. The simple act of turning a contract into a, a professional contract into a gift tells us that Nike thinks it's their ch charitable gesture that, that'll create value. And correct me if I'm wrong, but that's probably not the message that Nike wanted to send to their disabled consumers. But again, if you were to really watch this ad, you would realize that we weren't the intended audience. Nike, everybody else was. Nike was simply using us 
to inspire you. This brings me to Microsoft's holiday ad. Uh, in it, a disabled kid beats, basically beats Bowser uh, using the new Xbox adaptive controller. And I get it, right? It's a good story. Disabled kids should have the equipment that they need to play video games. But in telling this story, Microsoft happened to erase another and what I find to be more important story. And that is actually the story of how uh, the uh, Xbox adaptive controller came to be. So there is a group of disabled gamers, uh, and they, they hack and they modify gaming equipment. They, they call themselves able gamers. And they partnered with Microsoft um, to create the Xbox adaptive controller. Um, and it's been really interesting to kind of track their process as these Microsoft ads have rolled out because increasingly they're feeling frustrated um, by the fact that they're now stigmatized in gamer culture for, for something that has so ultimately led them to feel a little bit infantilized. Um, I, after seeing these series of ads, decided that I wanted to do something to start tracking what was going on in the way that disabled people were represented in media. And so I created a website called Critical Access. It's simply criticalaccess.org, um, A-X-I-S. Um, and if you go on, what you'll see is you'll see a matrix. And on the matrix exists as many disability tropes as I could think of. Um, and we just started plugging in different ads that feature disability just to see what, what we would learn. Um, and it quickly got pretty depressing. Uh, we started learning, um, one of the things that we learned was that when, um, the, the more words a disabled person authentically speaks, the, le the less the ad is, uh, or the less believable the ad is perceived to be. Um, other things we learn is, is um, that a lot of the things that disabled people are doing are being depicted uh, by brands as things that are actually empathetically done for us. And this is why disability scholars such as Cynthia Bennett and Meryl Alper and Chansey Fleet were so outspoken about Lego Braille bricks. Because while Lego was positioning these as an innovation of something they had created, uh, Lego Braille bricks were actually created by the family of a blind man in the 1980s. Um, and in rolling out their version of Lego Braille bricks, um, these are Lego Braille bricks, um, Lego happened to er erase the history of, um, of, of the ways people have interacted with Lego type products, blind people. And this is, again, a continuing theme. The things that we radically fight for never cease to turn into things that are empathetically done for us. You can't get away from it. Um, I realized a couple of years ago that if you Google the phrase design for disability, it yields about 10 times as many search results as the phrase disability design. And that was really frustrating to me because what I saw is, is that um, the ways that we are recipients of design have embedded itself into our language. But if you really think about it, what you realize is, is that it's actually disabled people whose innovations have changed the world. Um, does anybody here use um, finger works? No? So back in 1998, there was this guy, his name was Wayne Westerman. And what he, um, he, he started struggling with some, some carpal tunnel and some tendonitis, and he decided he wanted to do something about it. He wanted to continue working. And so he created finger works. And then in 2005, Steve Jobs bought the technology. It became the iPhone touchscreen, right? So who here uses finger works? Another example, 1655, uh, a paraplegic and watchmaker, uh, watchmaker named Stephen Farfler 
uh, decided to make what he called the manumotive carriage. Uh, it was actually the first ever um, manual wheelchair. And unbeknownst to him, it became the precursor for the modern day bicycle. Right? So disability ingenuity has been known to change the world, and yet we are pos positioned in our language as being recipients. And so what I decided to do was is I decided to create something called the WITH Fellowship, as in design with disability. And what we do is we partner creative disabled people with top design studios and creative spaces. And it's been, it's been a really powerful experience, but I increasingly encounter brands who will approach me and say, oh, so you're, you're talking about co-design, right? Like that's, that's what people think I'm talking about. And what I oftentimes say is, is no, I'm not talking about co-design at all. With is the antithesis of co-design. So what's the difference? Well, in co-design, it is the, the designers and it's the institutions that get to decide when and how disabled people are included in the process. But with, with is disabled people inserting ourselves into the process. Early on with the WITH Fellowship, I made a rule for myself where I wouldn't tell stories of WITH Fellows to validate the work that we're doing in the space. We deal with a lot of exploitation and disability, and I didn't want to perpetuate it in any way. Um, and about, maybe about two months ago, I, one of the WITH Fellows was um, asked to speak on a podcast, and, and she recommended that I also speak. Um, and it was the first time that I thought, okay, well, if it's both of us on this podcast, then I'm going to tell this story that I had been dying to tell about this fellow. And it's a good story, which I'm not going to tell you because I don't tell stories about with fellows. Um, but it was really interesting. So I, I told this story. Um, and what I didn't realize was, is so they had interviewed the, the with fellow uh, before they had interviewed me, but I didn't realize they had actually gone in and asked to interview her again. And so when I heard the, the actual podcast once it aired, I just put my head in my hands because what they did is, is even though she was the person they had initially approached, they ended up making her uh, an example of my good deed. And so there really is very little ways that we can talk about disability except for talking about talking about disability. Um, and I suppose this is why I started my design talk by talking about the ways that brands depict their interactions with us. Because their stories are not our stories. And yet their stories are the ones that generate headlines and appear at the top of search results, only to be discovered by yet another design researcher equipped with a client brief and some good intentions. Um, if you ever get the chance, just Google disability good intentions. It's intriguing. Um, so anyway, so what happens? So the, the researcher will take note of a good thing that Lego did, right? And then they'll discover that Microsoft, they didn't just make a controller, but they also made a, cool, a toolkit, right? An inclusive design toolkit. Surely they'll use that. And then to back it up, Nike got like a gajillion views, so surely they did something right. But Nike didn't do something right. They didn't do any of it right. And this is why, more than anything, disabled people need you to question the things that you perceive as wholesome. Because it can have impact. Like, literally, like, you don't know when it's going to have impact. Like, it could have impact this morning, which happened. This morning, LEGO rolled out another Braille product in it. They captioned, uh, or they, they audio described the video, and in it they credited the blind man who created it. His name is Matthew Schifrin. So I, because it was only this morning, I didn't have a chance to put it into my talk. Um, but if you go to lego underscore group, uh, the video comes up. And so 
And so this is really the fight that I'm in, is, is how is it that you start to get brands to pay attention and start to get brands to do things a little bit differently. Um, one of the main brands that I spend my life harking on trying to get them to pay attention is, is IDEO. Um, we're like, uh, we're like all the time. <laughs> so about, oh God, a year and three quarters ago, IDEO asked me to um, come into their offices. They said they wanted to show me something. Um, I was like, okay. So I go in and they say, we uh, want to show you this technology that we created that's intended to get disabled people hired. Uh, and I said, great. What disabled people did you hire to create this technology that's intended to get disabled people hired? <laughs> they were like, none. Um, and so that led me on a journey uh, which ultimately led to the creation of what I call design questioning. Um, and design questioning is actually created in response to design thinking, um, which I actually started through this process started to see problematic. So if you think about it, design thinking was created in like the 1960s, sort of essentially by white men who had no equals, right? They were uh, <laughs> the most powerful designers in the world. They were aligned with the greatest institutions in the world, and they were creating products that filled the homes of millions of people all over the world. And what they started realizing was is that design wasn't reaching everybody, and so they created a system built on empathy to fill in those gaps. And while I argue much good has come from design thinking, it has inadvertently fueled the narrative that disabled people are recipients rather than drivers of design. And so what design questioning does is it goes through and it looks through at design thinking from the user's perspective because I believe when we're finally able to question the systems that disable us, everybody involved will stop seeing our bodies as the problem. So I'm gonna go through design thinking through the lens of design questioning. So step one, uh, designers cultivate empathy through observations and interviews. But if you actually speak to a disabled person has, who has been through this process, what you'll find is, is that it can feel a little bit less like empathy to us and a little bit more like designers are gleaning our ideas and our life hacks and they're selling them back to us as inspirational do-good without ever giving us credit. Uh, it makes me think of um, the story of Betsy Farber. So do you guys know what OXO kitchen products are? Um, they're these, they have these gummy tactile handles um, and they're, they've been heralded for uh, decades now as the universal example of universal design. Um, so I, um, I have always sort of wondered about it because you hear a lot about Sam Farber, right? You hear this story that Sam Farber saw that his wife was having a hard time peeling a carrot and so he decided he was gonna make a peeler that was easier for her to use. Um, thus the, the birth of OXO. So, I, I, sit, I, I, I work in an office and I sit across from my mentor, his name is Tucker Veermeister. I, I lovingly refer to him as the world's most industrial designer. Um, he invented the grip, the good grips. And this one day I just happened to ask him, I said, um, Tucker, can you tell me about Sam's wife, Betsy? I've never heard anything about her. And Tucker, he got this look on his face. He was like, yeah, he's like, did you know she was a designer? And I said, no, I did not know she was a designer. He was like, yeah. She was around all the time. And so I thought about it for a few days and I was thinking to myself, I don't know any designer that would just let her husband inspirationally like, make her a peeler. And so I picked up the phone one day and I called up Betsy 
And the first thing she said to me was, is I'm gonna go down in history as being Sam's lowly crippled wife when it was actually my idea in the first place. So that's step one. <laughs> so step two of design thinking is defining the problem. But because disabled people are not involved in the process, it oftentimes becomes us that's defined as the problem rather than the problem being defined as the problem. So designers have our insights gleaned, we are defined as the problem, and then they enter an, an iterative process of ideation, prototyping, and testing, which leads to what I call the unacknowledged sixth step of design thinking, or as I call it, design thinking, because we're expected to be grateful for that which has been done for us. And I got through this process, right? Like I, I, um, I had gone into design thinking, I had, had reached design questioning, and I, I still sort of felt like there was something pulling at me. And what I realized was is that I was really struggling with, with this concept of empathy. I, I mean, like empathy wines, I feel like we've sort of lost the plot. Um, <laughs> this is actually, so empathy wines were created by, he's a, a billionaire venture capitalist. Um, they, it's empathy wine, so it's affordable. Uh, in USD, USD, they run between 30 and $40 a bottle. So what's that, like 50, 60, 70 AUD? Uh, so empathy. Um, anyway, so what I learned, I, I learned something really interesting about empathy, and you actually need to kind of go back and look at the history of it to really understand what it is that we're doing right now in design in this space. So the word empathy has only been around since, I think, 1909, and it derives from a German term called Einfühlung. So what happened was is there was a psychologist. His name was Theodore Lips. And he, right, he, was, uh, he lived in an era where he was friends with Rilke and Rodin. He was Freud's mentor. And what he started to realize was is that when a person goes into a museum and they encounter a great work of art, right, they may tug at their collar or they may put their hand on their heart and take a step back, right? And they might start to sway. And what he started realizing was is that people are physically moved by works of great human expression. And so he developed a term, and he called it unfulung, and that is what it meant. It meant physically moved by works of great human expression. And the term, it took off. This was in Germany. And eventually, it made its way to the United States. And when it did, uh, it, made, it made its way through empathy. But the word, it wasn't just the word that changed, but it was also the definition. And it shifted. It shifted from feeling, um, uh, from feeling um, moved by works of great human expression. And it started to mean feeling sympathy or, in, as we experience it in disability, feeling pity for a person's situation or circumstance. Right? And the thing that has been so striking to me is, is that in this time, as uh, disability was shifting from pity to inspiration. At the same time, empathy was shifting from inspiration to pity. And I think that in this process, we've lost the ability to, to parse out or glean one emotion from the other. I, I think we very much feel these things the same way. And so what I believe is, is this process is actually leading to three outcomes that we don't like to consider, right? So the first one is, is that it reifies class and power structures. So if you think about it, when you have the empathizer and then you have the empathizee. And the empathizer is the one that gets to tell the story, right? They're the ones that create the narrative. And the empathizee, they, they're sort of lost in all of it. 
The second outcome is, is it prescribes emotions, right? I, the thing that I'm sort of really obsessed with, and I can't kind of figure out how to express it any better than this, but I think that we have tr started convincing ourselves that things that feel a certain way do a certain thing, but they don't. I would even go so far as to say that things that um, feel a certain way prevent us from doing a certain thing, right? Like, I don't think that empathy wines make much of a difference. And the third thing is, is it silences the recipient. So I got through empathy, and I still was a bit hung up on this. And so where I'm at right now is, is I'm really stuck on this idea of thinking. Um, I was at an event like three months ago, and Tim Brown, uh, who was the CEO of IDEO, um, he's a man who has spent the last 30 years of his life popularizing design thinking. And he was being interviewed. And over the course of the entire interview, he didn't say the phrase design thinking one time. That is until the interviewer asked him specifically about it. And this was Tim Brown's response. He said, so unless we popularize design methods and design approaches, and we use the convenient term design thinking, even though I think it's got lots of downsides to it, but anyhow. So suddenly, Tim Brown thinks that design thinking, not design thinking, just the term design thinking has downsides to it. And I'm like, of course, this is what design thinking does, right? It credits the thinkers. Um, and what I realize is, is we are told from the moment we enter our first design course to be empathetic and to think of, right? To think of, to think of usability. And all the while that we're being told to think of, we're actually being taught something a little bit different. We're being taught to think for, as though we've become these Vitruvian godlike creatures, and that simply by entering this profession, we become arbiters of all that is good and just. And if there's one, in all of this, if there's one thing I've learned, it's this. Oh, that's Tim Brown, that's not what I've learned. <laughs> Thinking is elitist. Think about it. No, don't think, question. Who gets to be in a think tank? right? Who is a thought leader? Who gets to do design thinking? And are they really doing the thinking or are we just getting credit? So what is disability, right? What is it? Um, disability didn't exist before industrialization, right? So you would have me with my cane, uh, you would have a deaf person, and you would have a blind person. And we would be existing in our communities, contributing as we could. Um, wasn't always great, but we were never grouped together um, it, it, through this lens of this thing called disability. What happened was is industrialization, it rolled around and it created this expectation that bodies could perform in rote and mechanized ways. And suddenly for the first time in history, there was a subset of bodies that couldn't contribute like the others. And so industry turned to doctors and philosophers at the time to diagnose those bodies as disabled. Those bodies were then segre segregated and institutionalized. And at the time, disability quite simply meant unable to contribute. But what I would actually argue now is, is that disability now means prevented from contributing. The world has taught us that a disabled body is nothing more than a body in need of intervention. And this is exactly what designers do, right? We design interventions. We dedicate 
our careers to it. We are here today because of our commitment to this process. We are seekers who develop our skills with rigor because we oftentimes want to be the best. There's a certain glory in being a designer. And so I see the natural progression. Of course, we're going to want to apply our highly attuned skills to something that we think needs fixing. But I'm somebody who straddles both sides. I am a disabled designer. And while solutions are fulfilling to me as a designer, as a disabled person, this process feels destructive. It feels like we've become a project or a topic instead of a discipline or a craft. Where is the rigor? Design schools are beginning to offer accessibility curriculum. But in lieu of creativity, students are learning about disability through compliance checklists. But that's not design. Design is art. Well, art with rules. And if, if accessibility is the rules, where is the art? This is where I come in, because the art is in the disability culture. It's in the history. It's in the knowledge. It's in the theory. People don't realize that disability is something a person can feel passion for and endeavor in. Disability can be a practice, a creative practice. But design schools aren't fostering relationships with people who engage in disability as a creative practice. And so a culture is being created where students don't think they need to build real relationships with actual disabled people. They just need to feel empathy for us. So this really interesting thing happened uh, during the first application process of the WITH Fellowship. Uh, one of the top design schools in the US reached out to me, and, and they said, would you like to see our disability numbers? And I thought to myself, like, yeah. Um, but I also knew that the numbers were going to be skewed. Because so how, do you, how are these numbers uh, achieved? And I think it's actually very similar here in Australia. So what happens is, is in order for a school to um, uh, uh, like, uh, compartmentalize a student as disabled, that student first needs to go to um, the doctor's office. They need to get a note. They need to then go uh, to the administration at the school. They need to go through a series of approvals. And then they have to self-identify to the teacher. And so you can imagine that a lot of people who have needs don't want to go through the stigmatizing process. And so they don't actually um, aren't able to get their needs met. And so these numbers are oftentimes much lower than um, what the actual disabled student population actually is. But going into it, I knew that about, on average, in the United States, 11% of any college population is disabled. Like that's, That I knew. And so when this school handed me their disability numbers, I was blown away. There are departments that are 30%, 40% disabled. I mean, the, every, every, like, it was, I think it ended up being like 20% of this design school um, had a disabled student force. And so um, I started obsessing over it. And, and I realized, like, and this is, this is something I really want to study, is that I, I, there's three things that are at play here. So the first is, is that, um, Right, disabled people are the original life hackers. We spend our lives cultivating an intuitive creativity because we're forced to navigate a world that's not built for our bodies, right? That's how we came to invent the iPhone touchscreen and the bicycle and cruise control and curb cuts and the electric toothbrush and, you know, the list goes on and on. So, of course, right, if you have this cultivated creativity, of course you're going to be more inclined to enter design schools. So I think, yes, the numbers are exponentially high in the beginning. But what I believe happens, what I want to study is, is what is happening to these students year after year, right? Where are they going? I believe these are probably the students that are dropping out the fastest. And so I think those numbers probably decline year after year. And then this is where I'm stuck is, is where do these students go after graduation? When's the last time you worked with a disabled creative director? Why isn't there a blind person in this audience? 
right? These are all questions we need to ask ourselves. Um, and so for me, the thing that I started realizing was is that there's a really easy solution. It's actually really easy because it's not just the disabled students that are not getting their needs met. It's actually the students who have taken an interest in disability who don't have access to the resources and materials to, to really succeed in it, right? It's everybody here in this room that just doesn't have a baseline knowledge of disability. The system has failed us. And so what I fundamentally believe is, is if we start to incorporate disability studies curriculum into design schools, what happens is you create a space for these students, right? The disabled students, yes, but also the students who don't identify as disabled but really want to work in this space to find each other and to work together so that when these students enter the workforce, nobody thinks they're designing for anybody else, but instead they think they're designing with, right? It, to me, the, the solution seems so simple and so obvious. And all of it, to me, comes back to this really important question of, of what if, instead of trying to smooth out disability, what if we instead, decided, uh, instead develop the capacity to acknowledge and appreciate the friction of disability? I want to be able to honor the friction of my disability. I like to think that if design can start investing in disabled people instead of trying to fix us, this work can be expansive. A couple of weeks ago, I was invited by a, a large corporation to come and check out their accessibility lab. And it was in a really big building in New York City. And you hear the word accessibility lab, and you're like, okay, like it's going to be a lab. Right? And they'd built it up, and they'd built it up. And I show up, and it's not a lab. It's a small room. And I walk in, and I was like, huh. But it was a strange small room. It looked like they had cleared out a closet, and they'd stuck a couple computers and some other stuff in it, and there was like a sound machine. Um, and they're like, welcome to our accessibility lab. And I just like, I'm weirded out. And so I, you know, I, I just start like just playing. And so I remember they have the, like those Bose glasses that have like the headphones in them, so I like stick those on, and, and I start playing Lizzo. And then like they have like these like simulation goggles, and so I like stick those on, and I'm like just like messing shit up. And like I start blasting Lizzo, and I'm like literally like like taking over the room dancing. And I'm thinking like while I'm doing this, I'm thinking to myself, like what the hell is wrong with me? Like you know like maybe they want to work with me. Like not anymore. But. I think the thing that I realized was is that I was like, this isn't disability at all. You can't just like clean out a closet, stick in like a couple of things, and, and call it accessibility and think that you're reaching disability. I think that when disability actually fin finally enters this corporation, it's going to feel a little bit messier, right? And I think I wanted to show them that they couldn't constrain me, right? I wanted to show them that this is expansive. I wanted to show them the messiness of it. And so that's, you know, I think that's where I'm at is, is I think we want this process to be clean, and it's not. We are designers. As children, we may discover we have a knack for design, and yet we know that's not enough. We go to school and we develop our skills. We graduate and we attend events like this one today. This is our commitment to our profession. And yet, when it comes to disability, we oftentimes think we just know, but we don't. It's a process that requires commitment and reflection. Uh, a year ago, I was walking through New York City, and uh, I encountered the most beautiful bouquet of flowers I had ever seen in my entire life. And I, I, I just I couldn't believe it. Uh, the first thing I did was I took this picture. 
Uh, second thing I did was I decided I was going to save it, right? And so um, the cherry blossoms, I mean, they were, they were tall. So I think they were like six feet tall. But there were tulips at the base. And so I picked up a lot of the tulips, and I took them into the office, right? And, um, and I was sitting there, and I was you know, looking at the tulips, and I was thinking about it. And I pull open the, um, my phone, and I'm looking at the picture. And I just I can't get over it. I can't, I, I can't understand who would throw these flowers away. I need to save them. And so I hobbled back down the two blocks to where these cherry blossoms were. It was the first thing in the morning. Like, I was out really early. Uh, so I was the first person to have reached it. And I go and I decide I'm going to tug at a couple of the cherry blossoms and see if I can get them out. And I do. And as soon as I tug them, the entire trash can falls over. I'm thinking to myself, what have I done? It was so beautiful. I ruined it, right? Now I, no longer was this something that I was going to save. Now I had ruined a thing of beauty. And I had just gotten this brand new leather jacket. And I didn't care. I hugged that New York City trash can and I, I lifted it right up. But in doing so, I, um, it, didn't, it, it wasn't quite as beautiful. Everything was lopsided. So I, I picked up the cherry blossoms that I had managed to pull from it and I took them into the office. And I go back, and I'm just, I'm still thinking about it, still thinking about it. And I decided to open up the picture again. And that was the moment that I realized there was a hashtag on the ground. And so I open Instagram, and I check out the hashtag. And it was only then that I realized that nobody had thrown these flowers away. <laughs> it was a public art installation. <laughs> and so I started crying, right? And I was just, I was, I was like, who would do this? Like, you know, loser. Um, and so I did what um, I do. Um, I emailed the artist and I told on myself. And I said to him, I find myself completely overwhelmed, both by the beauty and by the misguided nature of my instinct. And I hope this serves as a, a reminder to me, a disability advocate, that not all things need saving. Sometimes they just need to exist. Thank you. <laughs>